before the message this morning, I wanted to take um, a few moments to share with you about uh, an upcoming trip that I'll be taking at the end of this month. I shared this at our council meeting, but many of you weren't there, and uh, it seemed important to me to let the church family know um, what I'm going to be doing. Um, I've wanted to visit the Brethren in Christ churches in Zambia and Zimbabwe for two or three decades, and that's a long time to want something. Um, I'm praising God today for making possible for me to travel to those countries. At the end of this month, I'll be heading to Africa um, two days after Easter, March 29th, along with my good friend Beth Huffnagel from Grantham Church. We will begin in Zambia at Macha with Chris and Marla's book, who are missionaries sent out from our church here. And we'll spend a number of days at Macha with them, uh, learning about and experiencing the community there, including Macha on a Sunday morning. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard Chris and Marlis talk about going to Matcha Church on Sunday morning, but there's a girls' school there, and when the girls leave the dormitory, they sing their way to church. And as they sing their way to church, the community comes out of their homes and sings along with them. I can't wait <laughs> to sing my way to church. I sing my way to church lots of Sundays when I'm by myself in my car, but it's not the same thing. Um, our time at Matcha will be followed by a couple days of sightseeing with Chris and Marlis. They'll be taking us into Botswana for an overnight safari. Yes. And then a trip to Victoria Falls. And by the way, I wanted to say that if any of you <clears throat> want to send along cards or notes of encouragement to Chris and Marlis, I will be happy to carry them. And uh, we'll actually be there over Marlis's birthday. So if you want to send birthday cards, just put whatever cards or notes you want in my church mailbox, and I will take them along with me and deliver them for you. After a week with Chris and Marlis, Beth and I will cross over the border into Zimbabwe, and we'll take a bus to Bulawayo, which is about a five- or six-hour bus ride. And there we will um, be with women that I befriended this past summer when they were here for Mennonite World Conference. The first weekend in, Zambia, in Zimbabwe, we'll have the privilege of attending the Zimbabwe Brethren in Christ Women's Conference at Matopo Mission. Matopo Mission is the very first site of Brethren in Christ World Missions in the late 1800s, and uh, we're privileged to get to go to this women's conference with them for an entire weekend worshiping and hearing the word together. <clears throat> uh, after that, Beth will be returning to the States a couple days after the conference, and I'll be staying on for an additional week, and I'll be returning, uh, leaving there April 19th um, to come back home, and in that time, hopefully visiting more of the churches and the people and the pastors and the bishop, and I'm hoping to also get to see uh, Umchebezi, one of the other mission sites. Um, while I'm there, I'll also have the chance to deliver children's fleece pajama pants that Pat Morton is currently sewing. She'll be sending them along. Um, the pastoral couple from Hillside Brethren in Christ Church in Bulawayo stayed with Pat during Mennonite World Conference, and we'll be sending um, Pat's pajama pants to them to distribute to families um, there for their winter. They, they do have winter and it is cold, it's not long like ours, and it's not as cold as ours, but it's cold to them, 
And so Pat will be helping to keep children warm, and I'm privileged to be able to carry those things um, with me. <clears throat> I'll definitely appreciate your prayers for me and Beth as we travel and as we spend time with the Brethren in Christ in these two countries. Paul's words to the Romans come to mind as I think about my trip. He says, for I long to see you, that I, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And I so look forward to being mutually encouraged with my brothers and sisters there. Well, this is the first time, <coughs> excuse me, since I was diagnosed the first with time breast that cancer I had at the end of October. And this morning's um, message is a bit more personal than um, I might normally preach. It's actually less of a sermon and more of a personal testimony. Our biblical text this morning is just one verse, Romans 12, verse 5. Romans 12, verse 5. Excuse me. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. In the last couple of years, I've come to enjoy a translation of the New Testament that was done in 1902 by a man named Richard Francis Weymouth. It's called the Weymouth New Testament. In his translation, Romans 12:5 says, So collectively we form one body in Christ, while individually we are linked to one another as its members. I recall <clears throat> the first time that I thought about community. My older sister was one grade ahead of me, and her yearbook for her graduation year, 1977, was focused on the theme of community. I was 16 years old when I got that book, and it made such an indelible impression on me that when I thought about community this week, it was the pages of that book that came to my mind. So all these years later, I pulled that yearbook from my junior year of high school off the shelf. I still have it. I'm Sentimental, right? Um, I pulled it off the shelf, and it said um, community, and it had five concepts to define it. Community is people working with each other, mixing customs, each an individual a part of a whole. Community is one of the things that first drew me to the Brethren in Christ Church in 1983. After graduating from college and having a clear sense of God's call to serve in ministry, my search led me to the Carlisle Brethren in Christ Church <clears throat> through the Christian computer job bank called InterCristo. Maybe some of you might remember it. The two distinctive traits that made the church appealing to me in its description were its emphasis on discipleship and on community. Discipleship and community continue to be two distinctive traits all these years later, which make me very thankful to be part of the Brethren in Christ Church here in Harrisburg. I'm going to stir up the waters just a little bit here. Some people don't like the name of our denomination, suggesting that brethren is an archaic word not commonly used in our culture thus not commonly understood, and that it's not an inclusive term. So though I understand the concerns, 
I actually have the opposite perspective. I love the name Brethren in Christ. Brethren in Christ. During a Bible study on James during my college years, I learned that the word brethren literally means blood brothers, which is why I favor the name. We are brothers and sisters united in blood. Not that we have the same bloodline running through our veins like brothers and sisters born to the same parent or parents, but instead united by the literal blood of Jesus Christ. As we go through these weeks of Lent, reflecting on the cross and the sufferings of Jesus, it's significant to me to realize anew that we are brothers and sisters with one another. Family, people belonging to one another, members of one another, community because of the loving sacrifice of Jesus. <clears throat> community answers the longing of the human heart for connection. Last July, the American Psychological Association joined the American Medical Association and others in a new effort to address the growing problem of opioid abuse in our country. The use of prescription painkillers, heroin, and other opium derivatives has reached crisis levels across the United States, with 44 people dying each day from them. Overdoses and many more becoming addicted. There's a book called Chasing the Scream, in which Johan Hari wrote about the beginnings the globe, of the interviewing crisis. a range of people involved in the war on drugs, from scientists to politicians, from addicts to police officers. When he began his research, he believed, perhaps like many of us, that the cause of addiction was the drug itself. For years, our understanding of addiction was based on a famous series of studies involving a rat and two water bottles. Perhaps you've heard of it or have seen the TV commercials based on it. Scientists placed individual rats in small empty cages with two bottles. One bottle had water in it. The other one had water laced with heroin or cocaine. The rats would try both bottles, but preferred the water laced with drugs, drinking it, drinking it, drinking it until they died. But as Harry continued to study the cause of addiction, he found a different version of the study led by another psychologist, Bruce Alexander. Alexander <clears throat> realized that the original experiments were too unrealistic. The rat in the cage was all alone with nothing to do but drugs. So he created a different experiment. He built what he called Rat Park, a large cage filled with everything a rat could ever want in life, including a whole community of rats to live with. Then he put the two water bottles, one with just water and one with water laced with heroin, in the cage and observed what happened. The rats would try both bottles, but they would not become addicted to the heroin. There were just too many other good things to do in Rat Park. While the rats in the solitary cages became addicts and eventually overdosed, none of those in Rat Park became addicts. Life was too good and too full of purpose. He saw similar patterns in other situations. For example, during the Vietnam War, many soldiers experimented with heroin. 20% of the soldiers became addicted to heroin, yet when they returned to the homes they loved, away from the horrors of war, the vast majority of those who used heroin, 95% of them, did not need to go through recovery. He noted that the same can be said of medical patients who receive 
strong pain relievers at hospitals today, a purer form of heroin. Most do not come out addicted. Ari concludes that those whose lives are filled with purpose and meaningful human connections are far less likely to become dependent on drugs to fill the hunger in their lives. All of this suggests that the rise of addiction is a symptom of a deeper sickness in the way we live, constantly directing our gaze toward the next shiny object or screen rather than the human beings all around us. In the end, Hari argues that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it is human connection. Community answers the hunger of our hearts for connection. Yet so often, we miss out on it, even in the church. Larry Crabb wrote a book called The Safest Place on Earth about the church. And in it, he describes a scene that he and his wife saw in Florida when they were on vacation with one another. He talks about um, a block away from the luxury beach hotels, there was an ordinary big city street, excuse me, noisy, dirty, heavily trafficked with cabs and buses and plumbing repair trucks. The street was lined with less than elegant businesses and shops and road dwellings with the occasional green shrub poking its way out of a square foot of dirt in the concrete. No one was snapping pictures to send home or put in scrapbooks. He said, at one point we walked in front of a wood slatted porch, maybe 10 feet deep with perhaps 60 feet of sidewalk frontage. At least 100 chairs were arranged in neat rows and columns, none touching, each in exactly the same position to the others. The occupied chairs, and most of them were occupied, excuse me, each held one motionless retired man or woman staring straight ahead at the street. I can't recall seeing anyone rocking, though I'm sure someone was, he wrote. I do remember that no heads turned to follow a passing taxi or pedestrian or to chat with another porch sitter. I didn't see any crossed legs. There were no paperback novels or newspapers, not even a cup of coffee or a glass of iced tea. There was no conversation, no evidence that any of these people had been created by a relational God to enjoy intimate relating. These people's souls were asleep, numb, pointless conversations. No doubt those conversations had all seemed important at the time. I remember thinking all their lives, everyone on this porch worked hard in Detroit or New York with the dream of retiring in Florida. And now they've made it. But look at them. Everything they've lived for has come to this. Lord, deliver me from living in a manner that will leave me one day sitting in a chair next to other people who are also sitting in chairs looking straight ahead, never into another person's eyes, never knowing anyone and known by no one. He said the sight of that porch was unspeakably sad, I can't forget it. And then he goes on, I wonder if the spirit feels as we did when he walks by a group of Christians. There are of course some differences, most often we're chatting, sometimes singing, occasionally in certain circles dancing, we're engaging in serious conversations, Bible studies, storytelling, and weekend retreat planning, as well as in lively but mundane interactions about sports and juicy did you hear about so-and-so tidbits. Every morning we stand, then sit, then sing on command. Some of us raise our hands, most of us sit still while someone talks to us. I'm the one talking. 
At some point, we reach into our wallets and drop a mixture of green and silver into a big soup bowl with a velvet lining to keep the silver from clanging. We're doing a lot, he says, but I wonder if the spirit who lives in a circle with two others who are always relating sees us as Rachel and I saw the retired folks on the Miami Beach porch, lined up in chairs facing straight ahead with no life passing back and forth among them. Is that what we really look like? It's not what Christ had in mind, is it, when he told Peter that on his rock he would build the church. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. I learned several things in the last year, and I'm going to share three of them with you. The first one is that my life, um, this was before cancer, my life was enriched last summer in being part of Mennonite World Conference. Um, this Anabaptist conference is held every six years, and it took place, of all places, it could have been anywhere in the world, and it took place in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania taking place right here in our backyard, along with many others of you, I had the privilege of attending and meeting and being with Christian brothers and sisters from many nations. After Mennonite World Conference ended, there were a couple days of meetings for the International Brethren in Christ Association, known as IBICA. And that included men and women from nearly 30 countries, of which uh, are part of the IBICA. So it was during Mennonite World Conference and the IBICA gathering that I had the privilege to meet and talk with a number of women from the Brethren in Christ Church in Zimbabwe. And I spent as much time with them as I could um, before they flew home to Bulawayo. They stayed about 10 days beyond the conference. The Lord gave me a wonderful gift in giving me friendship and fellowship with these dear sisters. But it just as easily might not have happened. I didn't know them. I didn't know them. When we met, we were awkward strangers conversing with one another. So how did we get from awkward strangers to friends? And the path that led there was a path of service. My experience with these women from Zimbabwe was that the Lord laid before me an opportunity not just to talk and share with them, but to serve them, to help them to meet practical needs that they had in trying to get around in a country and in a culture that was foreign to them. I was busy, and I didn't have time to serve them on one hand. And yet, in serving them, um, I got to put love into action, and I got to know them. And then the feelings of love followed. I love these women today. I didn't love them when I met them. I served them when I met them. And then I loved them. It followed. Don't usually come first the feelings for us, do they? of love. The, the action of serving comes first. And then the feelings of love follow. Those of you who work with children, for instance, you shouldn't wait until you love children to work with children. No, you should work with children, and then you will love children. 
Same thing with teenagers. Don't wait until you love teenagers to commit to them. Serve teenagers, and then you'll love teenagers. I think that's how it works. I know that's how it works. Um, as Jesus was journeying to the cross, he gave a profound challenge to his disciples in John 13, 34 to 35. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you, have lo if you love one another. I don't think in this that Jesus was talking about the feeling of love. I think he was talking about the deed of love, that we would do loving deeds for one another in community, and when we do so, then belonging and love are experienced and witnessed. So the second thing that I learned and experienced in the last year <clears throat> is that God's power is unleashed in community. God's power is unleashed in community. We can see this, for example, in Acts chapter 12. It's one of my favorite um, stories in the book of Acts. James, the brother of John, one of the original 12, one of the sons of Zebedee, was killed by the sword under King Herod's reign. And Peter was arrested and put in prison. We're told he was guarded by four squads of soldiers. This had to have been one of the crisis moments for the early church. We're told in Acts 12:5 that Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. What a great line. But earnest prayer was, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. No doubt Peter's life was at stake. And the result of that earnest prayer was that an angel of the Lord miraculously broke the chains that bound his hands, took him past the first guard, took him past the second guard, and then took him through the iron gate to the city and left him there. And so Peter made his way to the home of um, Mary, the mother of John Mark, knocked on the door. Rhoda comes to the door and answers and can't believe that it's Peter, goes back in and tells the prayers that Peter's at the door and they can't believe that it's Peter. There's no way that God was going to answer their prayers. Is that maybe how they thought? There's no way that Peter could not be still in prison. God's power is unleashed in community and in community earnestly praying together. I don't want to minimize the power of God in an individual life or in the prayers of an individual. We have power individually. The Bible says that, uh, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. We have power when we have the Holy Spirit. I'm not trying to minimize that. But just imagine when your power and your power and your power and your power go together, how much more power do we have? So I was picturing it as um, if you're here on Christmas Eve, you know we have a candle lighting service. If you're not here on Christmas Eve, maybe you've been to churches that have candle lighting service. The room gets darkened, and the only light is the light of the Christ candle. So, a dim light, but light nonetheless. 
And then slowly, one after another, after another, after another, a candle gets lit, and another candle gets lit, and another candle gets lit, and it goes on and on. And all of a sudden, the room is filled with light. Yes? God's power is the same. Your power and your power and your power and your power. His power in you together unleashes um, phenomenal power. The devil, First Peter 5, tells around us, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, I told you I'm going on a safari, and I'm a little nervous about these roaring lions, quite honestly. <clears throat> Grabs my attention. As the saying goes, there's safety in numbers. We have more power to resist the attacks of our enemy when we're in community rather than when we're trying to face him all alone. So just as love grows in community through service, and God's power is unleashed in community, the third thing that I have experienced in this last year is that healing is ushered in through community. So for those of you who may not have been here at our church last fall, I received word at the end of October that I had breast cancer, an aggressive form. Pastor Woody shared the news with the church on November 1st, and you had touching, sweet time of prayer for me in the services that morning, as well as in the days that followed. On November 10th, I had mastectomy surgery, and I had originally been told by my um, doctors that I would, that that would be followed by six months of chemotherapy and radiation. The healing that I experienced in that time had two dimensions. One I knew fairly quickly, and the other I just more recently realized. The first healing is easy to share. I experienced the healing of my body which I believe was the result of prayers of faith lifted before our loving Father on my behalf. Thank you. How can I ever thank you enough? I don't know whether God <clears throat> miraculously healed my body of cancer by using the biopsy that I had, and it took every last cell of that cancer out of me, or if God, in his healing touch, sometime after my biopsy, before my surgery, touched my body, whichever it was, doesn't matter to me, quite honestly, whichever it was, it was nothing short of miraculous. When my surgery was done and I had my follow-up appointment about further treatment, the medical report was that they had not found a trace of breast cancer remaining and that, hey, it's better, and that neither chemo nor radiation were needed. This miracle lifts my heart in praise to God. The other healing I've since realized I experienced during that time is a little bit harder to share. So the background to this is, um, it goes back a decade or so in some ways, and it goes back even further to my childhood in other ways. So just to put it succinctly, Relational wounds leave deep scars, and I have some of those. 
I found that broken relationships heighten our insecurities and make us more vulnerable to attacks by the enemy. He's a deceiver, the father of lies, and some of the lies he whispers in our ears are about our worth. So there have been times when I've been affected by those lies. The whispers may be different for each of us, but for me, they've gone something like this. Your own father doesn't love you. No one loves as much as a father and mother. So if your own father doesn't love you, how can anyone else? When I came back to work in January, I shared uh, with you how much the expressions of your love meant to me and my family. But I didn't even realize then the effect that they had had on me. So as I have more recently reflected in these last months, I want to tell you that I have felt very loved, deep inside of me. When people made meals, you didn't just feed our bodies. When people prayed and sent cards and wrote emails and called and visited, I got it. You did more than all these things. If you know me, you know I always cry, right? When people, you prayed, you sent cards, you wrote emails, you called, you visited, you did more than each of those things. This is what you did. You showered love on me and my family. You were community and collectively you helped to usher in healing. Some of the deepest wounds that any of us carry are relational wounds, the wounds from parents not loving us, from the betrayal of a spouse or a friend, from rejection we have experienced, from various kinds of abuse. The community we have in Christ, if we allow ourselves to belong to one another, helps to bring healing to even the deepest, most hidden wounds. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. My Zimbabwean friends, their names are Sabongale, Priscilla, and Kwanele. We send brief text messages to each other regularly to keep in touch. A couple weeks ago, I received a touching note from Sabongale in which she said, you are a blessing to me. My life has changed, knowing you made me a different person. As I read that note that day, it struck me that with these simple words, she captured the essence of what God wants for us, that we would be a blessing to one another serving one another, belonging to one another, helping each other to experience God's love, God's power, God's healing, helping to change one another's lives. The choice becomes ours, whether or not we belong to others and whether or not we let them belong to us. Church can continue to be a place or church can continue to become a people, my people, what will it be for you? Rows of chairs in a place 
for people, my people. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you've given us to one another. We just scratch the surface, perhaps, of what that means. Thank you that you um, care so deeply for our needs for connection with each other. And you've given us the body. You've given us this body and other Christians that we relate to, to, to fellowship with and to grow with and to be changed by, to bless. Lord, help us to have the courage to um, not just sit in rows and look at the back of one another's heads and listen to a person talking, but help us to pull up chairs with one another, and face each other face to face and have conversations about meaningful things in our lives so that you, God, could teach us about your love and so that you, God, could display your power so that you, God, could heal us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Invite the uh, who's ever leading the closing song, the worship team, uh, to come. We're going to close with singing and a time of prayer. If there are things that you would like to have brothers and sisters help you pray through, invite the intercessors to come and join at the front. And let's continue to worship and to lift up one another together.
and sisters, pull up a chair with someone this week. Go in peace. Amen. <laughs> 